You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors. This is Rochelle Vanderzanden here with Corey Janoff. Hey. Hello. So today, it is, when this is published, 2024, and I feel like a lot of times I have an inclination to nitpick everything that I did in my own financial plan in the past year when a new year rolls around. It's just something I do. I think that part of the reason I got into financial planning is because I enjoyed micromanaging our own financial plan so much. It seemed illogical. <laughs> so today we're just going to talk a little bit about you know what you can do. I mean, everyone's making resolutions. Maybe we feel guilty because we ate too much or drank too much or spent too much over the last couple of months and lots of people just want to reflect and maybe make some changes. Maybe not. Maybe you're really happy with where you're at, which is also great. I think it's great to look at all of this and assess so that we can make adjustments if necessary. But also, if you're doing things right, it's really nice to look at it and just be like, we're good. And that way you don't have to be stressed about it. Just giving yourself that feeling of, I have looked over everything. It seems like we're on a good track. We have all these things automated. Like it looks great. And just give yourself a pat on the back. And that's really helpful as well. So today we're going to talk a little bit about how to get started, different things that you can look at in your financial plan to review, and how you can maybe take that to an advisor in your next meeting if you're working with a financial advisor. Lots of things like that. But Corey, do you have anything like high level that you like to think about in the new year? Um, not really, just surviving with two young kids and all the activities that we have planned and making sure everything's getting done in a timely manner uh, on schedule, making sure we're at the right place at the right time. But uh, in terms of finances, yeah, I'm with you. I enjoy this stuff. You know, I enjoy reviewing my own finances um, which makes sense. You know, if you, if you don't enjoy personal finances, it'd be weird to be a personal financial advisor. Um, and a lot of you, you know, listening or, or, or working with an advisor, many of you are clients of ours. Um, and the reason you have an advisor is because you don't want to have to deal with this stuff yourself. You don't want to, you know, want to be proactive about it. You want to put it off to someone else and have someone like us be the proactive ones bugging you to stay on top of these things. But like Rochelle said, you know, everything might be going just fine and dandy. Still good to, to have that, you know, once or twice a year progress check, kind of like going to your annual physical, going to the dentist, your teeth might be fine. You brush and floss every day. Your health might be great. No concerns, but still good to just have that pat on the back, you know, double check and make sure everything's all right. And things change over time. You know, rules change, laws change, regulations change, recommendations can evolve as a result. So there might be things that, you know, you might feel like you're doing fine, but there might be some new things out there that you could be taking advantage of that might optimize your circumstances uh, even more. So uh, good, uh, you know, at least once a year, just sit down, reassess your goals, reassess your circumstances, and are we on track to achieving our objectives? Um, and you don't necessarily even have to have concrete defined objectives. It's, you know, just where are we going? I think for pretty much everyone, 
you probably want to retire one day. So retirement savings big, you know, you probably want to be debt free one day. So if we have debts, you know, coming up with a game plan for those, uh, is probably important. Many of you want to help to some degree with sending kids to college. Um, and then, you know, just making sure we're you know, enjoying ourselves along the way, finding that right balance between, you know, enjoying today and planning for tomorrow. Absolutely. I think for some people it can be very overwhelming because it seems like there's so much to look at and think about with finances. And so we're going to start today just by thinking about like how do we get started? Like what can you look at just as a first step to get a good sense of where you're at? And we'll break it down by subject a little bit. But first of all, I would suggest that if there's anything that you're worried or stressed about or anxious about in your financial plan, like you should start there. Like just start with the thing that you think you need to work on if there's anything because I think it's really helpful when you have a problem to look at it and just, you know, or or if you think you have a problem. Maybe you don't. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe after reviewing this, you realize that you don't necessarily have a problem. But if you do, you know, you're off track for one of your goals or something like that, if you can make some adjustments to help you feel like, you know, you're, you're getting on track, like that's going to be really helpful to make you feel less worried and less anxious. So just as a, a few examples – we're going to talk a little bit about budgeting and debt repayment, some short-term savings goals, saving for retirement, and also like helping the kids, like Corey just mentioned. Like if you have kids, like what what are your goals for them as well? And then turning that into some actionable steps. Um, I do think for our clients, a lot of them do focus on spending and budgeting a lot, and and sometimes that's necessary, and other times it's not necessarily. Like some people, you have enough resources that your spending isn't necessarily a problem. But it's good to just reflect on your spending just to see what it looks like. So there's a couple of ways that you can go about that. If there's one credit card or one account that you all use as a household on a regular basis, it can be great to check online to see if that card or that bank has any resources for categorizing spending. And then you can just look at like, where did I spend money? Like, was it food? Was it shopping? Was it gifts? How much was it to each of these things? And think about it in terms of your overall budget. And and I'm guessing for a lot of people that a lot of people are spending more on food now, which is just partially inflation. There's not a whole lot we can do to control that. So, you know, maybe take a moment to reflect on that, but it may not be something you can make big adjustments to or even necessarily need to make big adjustments to. But the other thing I would suggest when you're reviewing spending is just look and see how your spending lines up with the things that you actually care about. You know, if you spent a bunch of money on travel, that makes sense if travel is really important to you. If you spent a bunch of money on travel, but it's really not that big of a priority, maybe you don't spend as much traveling this year. And you can make adjustments like that just to kind of line up how you're using your resources with what actually matters to you. Yeah, I think that's big is what really looking internally, what matters to you, what's important to you, because it's going to be different for everyone. You know, like you said, travel for some food. I mean, everyone has to eat, but some people are more foodies than others. But even for people who enjoy going out to eat, you know, if the fancy steakhouse doesn't bring extreme joy to you and you, you know, you find more happiness getting a, a juicy burger from a food cart, well, let's go to the food cart. It's a fraction mm -hmm. of the price and, uh, and you're getting more joy out of it. So yeah, really honing in on 
and this is kind of the Ramit Sethi, uh, you know, philosophy, just, you know, spend on the stuff that brings you happiness and cut out the stuff that doesn't. So if, you know, obviously we have, you know, the necessities, you got to have food, water, shelter. Um, but, but once you get past the basics, you know, if you enjoy driving a nice car, great. If you're not a car person, don't buy an expensive car. Um, you know, if you like nice new clothes, fantastic. I personally still wear clothes that I've had since high school. Um, you know, I, I'm not a, I don't go clothes shopping. You know, every once in a while, my wife will, will buy something for me and says, you need to re replace that old pair of shorts that go down below your knees. This isn't 2003 anymore. Um, but yeah, like, you know, spend on what brings you joy. Um, get rid of the stuff that doesn't not much you can do about the grocery store prices going up. Um, that's just normal over time. There's going to be inflation. Yes. It's been more pronounced over the last several years, but you know, prices will get more expensive over time. That's just part of life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The next thing we can look at is debt repayment. Um, for very early career docs, maybe we're looking at like some higher interest personal debt, you know, credit cards, personal loans, things like that. If you have any of that debt, ideally it's not growing. Ideally it's going down a little bit. Those are definitely the things that we should be uh, attacking first in terms of debt management. Like if you have high interest rate debt, get rid of that first. Um, and then after that, you know, if you still have student loans, we're looking at payments have kicked back in. So that's obviously a big adjustment for most people's budgets if you're if you're having um, federal student loans. But I think that's going to be a way of life. The other thing that we want to make sure is that we are crossing our T's and dotting our I's for PSLF if we're trying to work towards that program. That means making sure you know what your payment count is, that your employment has been certified properly, you know, that you're in the payment plan that's going to give you the lowest payment amount. And also check to see when you're going to next need to recertify your income. That's a big one for most people because payments have kicked back in very likely at the level that they were at when you went into forbearance at the beginning of COVID three and a half years ago. But at some point, they're going to look at your new income and they're going to want to make you make payments that are larger because your income may have increased and it's good to know when that's going to happen so you can kind of work that into the plan for 2024. There's a, a spot on the Mohila website where you can look at like income-driven payment plan details, and that's where you're going to find that IDR renewal date is what it's called. And I think with, I could be wrong, but with the new change, they're you know, kind of encouraging people to link their tax return up to on the student loan website so they don't have to submit their income verification every year. And I'm guessing that everyone is just going to be on like an April adjustment date moving forward as a result, but I could be wrong. I'm I wrong, don't think apparently. so. Yeah, I think it'll just be whenever your annual like kind of anniversary was, and then they'll just pull from whatever tax Got return it. you most recently filed. Mm -hmm. Okay, makes sense. So um, now there are like in the past, you could, you know, submit multiple forms of income, proof of income. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a tax return. A tax return could be beneficial, especially if you're going from like med school to residency, residency to attending. You want that prior year's tax return for proof of income because it shows a much lower income than you're actually making. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and then there's payment estimators online you can toy around with, you know, say, hey, I, this is what I'm making now plug that in on the estimators and, you know, family size, et cetera. And uh, then that'll give you an idea of what that payment is going to be 
when that adjusts for you. Yeah, so. the Mohila website is actually pretty useful. Trying to get them on the phone, it's not helpful. I mean, you should absolutely try if you need to talk to them, but it, it may take a while. I think they're obviously very overwhelmed with all the, the loans kicking back in, but um, there's a repayment plan evaluator on that website that's really helpful. Yeah. Not everyone's doing PSLF, though. I guess that's the other thing, you know, so if if your payments have kicked back in and you're still with federal loans and, and you know you need to pay them off the old-fashioned way, like this is a great time to reevaluate what your plan is. You know, what's the plan? What's the timeline? Like, when do you want them to be gone? How much do you need to pay every month for them to be gone in that time frame? Is that realistic? Reevaluate all of that at this point. Yeah, and if you have a very large student loan balance and not a very large income by doctor standards, that save plan can be pretty appealing because if your payments aren't enough to even pay the full amount of interest that you owe, the save plan subsidizes that excess interest above and beyond what your payment is, um, whereas the other plans don't do that. Um, then the other way around, if you have a high income and a small student loan balance, the save plan doesn't cap your payments based on income. So it might not be the best one for you. So yeah, you really want to kind of tool around and see what's the optimal one for your circumstances. And even if you're, uh, like Rochelle said, not pursuing PSLF, um, you know, there's a 25 year forgiveness plan. If you're in that high loan, lower income uh, demographic that, you know, you, you do the income driven plans for 25 years, you're on the save plan or whatever. If there's still a balance left, they'll forgive that remaining balance. That is a taxable forgiveness, but still, I'd rather, you know, pay 30 grand in taxes to wipe out 100k of debt than pay 100k of debt after tax. Um, but yeah, and possibly refinancing might make sense. It's not as attractive now as it was a few years ago. Um, but if you know, if you have an eight percent interest rate student loan and you feel like you could pay it off over a five year span, you might be able to knock that interest rate down to five or six percent, um, you know, or potentially less depending on the circumstances, and uh, that'll help you pay it off even faster. Yep. One other big piece of debt that a lot of people have is mortgages. You know, if you have an existing mortgage and you've had it for a while, you know, it may be perfectly appropriate to just write out that 30-year loan and just make a minimum payment. But it could be that you have other goals, and that's a good thing to evaluate as well. Um, if you have a more recent mortgage with a higher interest rate, if you just want to make sure it's gone by the time you retire, like this is the house I'm going to retire in. I'm retiring in 20 years. How do I make sure my mortgage is gone in 20 years? Like that can be a great goal. So, you know, double check your math and see if you're on track to do that. See if it's appropriate to do that. Like it may not be if you're not on track for retirement savings and things like that, but that's absolutely something that you can kind of roll in when you're on track to other things for other things. There is a psychological benefit to not having a mortgage when you're retired and owning your house free and clear. Even if the math would suggest like you have a 3% mortgage, you're better off saving more for retirement. And even if it means you're going to carry your mortgage a few years into retirement. Um, but you know, that's the, that's what makes personal finance fun. It's part math, part art, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> the, uh, going to be a different answer for everyone. Um, it doesn't just boil down to the spreadsheet and calculator. Yeah. Another thing that you can look at is just, you know, what are your short-term goals? What are you trying to achieve over the next couple of years? Even if it's buying a house, like, 
You know, are we working on setting aside some extra cash? Is that appropriate? I think that one right now is so, so hard to plan for because especially if it's a year or two out, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like when you buy. You know, we don't know what prices are going to look like. We don't know what interest rates are going to look like. But it will likely be helpful to have some cash on hand, you know, so just making sure that you have a good solid emergency reserve, you have a little extra aside for at least a 5% down payment probably plus closing costs and things like that, but potentially even a larger down payment if interest rates stay fairly high. You know, right now I think it's what, 7.5% is fairly average, Corey? I mean, by the time you hear this, who knows? I think this week it might have come down closer to seven, and this is mid-December when we're recording this. So it's it, it, they change daily. But yeah, right now, on paper, renting is much more financially appealing in most major markets than buying when you look at just the costs associated with it. But um, but yeah, you know, think things uh, adjust quickly, and you never, you know. So, But yeah, long story short, if you know we want to buy a... $1 million home, probably need to plan minimum five, if not 10% down for one of those physician home loan programs where you can get away with no mortgage insurance and, and put less than 20% down on the home. So if we need 10% down plus closing costs, we're going to need at least $100,000 available for that, whether that's from cash we've saved up or from selling our existing home. Um, and for anyone who's owned a home or bought a new home, you know, there's, it's more than just the down payment and closing costs. You know, you got the moving expenses. You're going to have to buy some furniture. You might want to like change some things with the home, rip out the carpet, put new carpet in, or, you know, replace the floors, repaint, whatever. There's a lot of, a lot of expenses above and beyond just the, the down payment when it comes to moving into a new house. That first year is always more expensive than you initially anticipated. Yeah. Corey, you brought up a good point, though, that it's not necessarily, you know, a great time to buy. So this is also a good time just to reevaluate what your goals are. You know, it, do I want to buy a house? <laughs> are you going to stay put for a while? Is it? Can you afford something that will make you happy? If you're renting in a place that's that's nice and you know that you'd have to pay twice as much a month in rent or as in a mortgage to like get into a house that's equivalent, it may not make sense at all. So there's lots of different things to consider just to kind of reassess what your goals are with the current environment, the way that it is right now. And every city and even every neighborhood is, is going to be different. So the the where I said, you know, buying a home in most major markets right now, you know, you could rent an equivalent home for like less than half of the cost of your monthly house payment when you factor in mortgage taxes, et cetera, not to mention maintenance expenses and whatnot. Granted, you're you know slowly building equity when you own the home, whereas when you're renting, you're not building any equity. But I mean, if you're looking at, hey, this house here, we could rent for 3,500 a month, but if we buy it, we're gonna have to put you know, 150k down, and it's gonna cost us 9,000 a month in mortgage and taxes and everything. Okay, that's like a, you know, we're talking almost a six thousand a month difference right there. And sure, we're not building equity, but like, there's other things you can do with that money that are building your net worth in other ways. Yeah, so really ask yourself if you're not a homeowner currently, um, and you want to be, like, why do you want to own a home? 
Um, no wrong answer, but if it's like because, oh, because my parents are pressuring me to buy a home because that's what grownups do, uh, I don't know if that's a good reason. Um, if it's, you know, you, you, you want to have a home, you want a place to call your own, you, you want to, you know, be in control, um, not have to answer to a landlord, not be at risk of them kicking you out, et cetera. Um, you, you, you like the idea of being able to build equity over time, having an asset to your name, um, that, which has advantages that come with it, then, then great. I'm all for it. But if you just want to buy a home, cause you've heard that's what you're supposed to do when you're a, an adult, um, yeah, it, depending on what city you're in, it might make a lot more financial sense to rent. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a hard one right now. It definitely needs some some careful thought for sure. Um, I think the other big, 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 big thing is long-term savings and retirement planning. And this is different for everyone. Like what you should have saved last year is going to be different from person to person. But try to reflect on, on what you were trying to accomplish in 2023 and then look at what you did. So for folks in training, maybe it was like you just wanted to max out your Roth IRA. You know, you just wanted to make that happen. That was it. That's about all you can afford. You know, that $6,500, honestly, you still have time. You can do that until the tax filing deadline. Um, so that could be a goal. If you're in attending, maybe you wanted to try to get your backdoor Roth contributions in, but also max out your retirement plans. The limit in um, 2023 was 22500 so you can go back and you can check your 403B or your 401K and you can see how much money you put into that plan to see if you hit that maximum. If not, maybe you make some adjustments so your contribution is a little bit higher so you can the following year. Um, and then, you know, some other people may have alternate retirement plans at work also that they're saving money into. It gets a little bit more complicated. Different dollar amounts can go into those. But the other piece where you can be saving is like a brokerage account. And some people are doing this, some people aren't. It's kind of related to what your income is. So ideally, we're trying to get to at least 20% of your gross income being set aside for long-term savings, but that varies quite a bit from person to person. So you can look back at what your total income from for the year was, how much went, in, went into your long-term accounts. Was it anywhere close? Do we need to make some adjustments? Do we need to increase contributions? Can we afford to save more? Or are we solid? And then if you're solid, like give yourself permission to feel a little more relaxed about these things. And that can give you a lot of peace of mind if you reflect back on what you did and you see that you are, in fact, saving a good chunk of your money for your retirement. Yeah. And I mean, the more you save for retirement, the sooner you can retire. You don't need a financial planner to tell you that one. But um, yeah, for most of you, you know, once you're in attending, if you're not already, we'd want to see you saving at least 20% of your income for retirement purposes. We've done the math enough times. If you start that savings in your early to mid thirties, that should put you on a pretty healthy track to be able to retire by your early to mid sixties, which is when most people want to be able to retire. Obviously, if you want to retire sooner or you're getting a later start, you're probably going to need to save more than 20%. And just taking a step back with all of these finance things that we're talking about, like your savings rate probably matters more than anything else by a mile when it comes to achieving your financial objectives. Like if you have a ability to have a high savings rate, it means you're living below your means. You have flexibility with where you put your money. You could direct it towards debt, direct it towards retirement savings, have that emergency fund. You're able to weather storms, you know, take blows, unexpected expenses pop up, uh, you know, 
income changes a little bit, that's totally fine. You're still going to be on track to achieving your goals. It's when that savings rate gets narrower and narrower that we have less and less room for error along the way. And any little missteps or mishaps in life could potentially set us back significantly from achieving our financial objectives. So for those of you that are young, still in med school, residency, listening to this, really, really, really try and prioritize uh, a healthy savings rate when you get into practice before doing anything else, before buying the house, before buying the car, etc. cetera. Um, cause if, if you can set aside, you know, again, at least 20% for retirement purposes, plus any other short-term objectives you have, that's going to put you on a pretty good track for your future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's also when your savings rate is smaller and smaller, it's so much harder to replicate that lifestyle in retirement too. Like you're, you're spending a good chunk at that point. Yeah. It's a double whammy. Like you're saving less and spending more as a result. You know, if you're saving 10% of your income, it means you're living on 90% of your income, you know, before taxes, of course. Um, whereas if you're saving 20%, you're only living on 80% of your income. If you're saving 30%, you're only living on 70% of your income. So Again, the more you save, it means by nature, the less you're spending and you're ultimately going to get to your goals exponentially faster as a result. And if you are doing well, take that as a permission slip to do a little bit more of the things that you like. If there's anything else you want to do, there are some people that, you know, are very happy with the quality of life that they have now and they don't necessarily want to spend more money on anything, which is great. But you know, if you feel like you're crimping corners, but you're also like really on track for everything, maybe that means you can take an extra trip a year. You can drink fancier wine or, you know, go to a nice steak dinner if that's what you really enjoy. So you can think about that as well. But the other main thing that I think sometimes comes up with people is, you know, are they on track to help their children the way that they want to help their kids? And that can be college savings. It can be setting aside additional money for you know, home down payment someday or whatever it is that your goals are. And I think it's really good to reflect on this one because for one thing, college is expensive and it's only getting more expensive. And that one is one I think people often undershoot. Like it it, it can be a lot that you potentially want to set aside for, for college education. And then if you do have other goals, you know, maybe that means exploring accounts beyond like the 529 account, maybe thinking about a brokerage account for them or things like that that are a little bit more flexible, but other ways to save for their kids. Um, but I do, there, you know, some people want their kids to stand on their own two feet. If that's not a goal for you, that's okay too. It's just a matter of taking stock of what you want to accomplish and whether you're on track to do that. Yep. Yeah, whatever the objectives are, let's you know figure out what's the optimal way to get there. Um, let's see another one to review: insurances. You know, we want to make sure we're we're protecting ourselves appropriately. Disability and life insurance. Um, most of you should probably have you know disability for sure, um, unless you're financially independent or medically just can't qualify for it. Um, life insurance, if you've got a spouse or, or kids or people that depend on you financially, you know, that's one we should probably have again, unless we're financially independent to where we've saved up enough to where they'd be fine if we passed away on the assets we've accumulated alone. 
Um, so just making sure those are appropriate in line with your circumstances. You know, it's the life insurance is the term long enough, uh, for our situation. Um, you know, is the amount sufficient disability is, uh, enough of our income protected to where we could still accomplish our financial goals if we could no longer work anymore due to disability. Um, and then adjusting those if needed, uh, long-term care, if you're getting a little older and, uh, you know, older for this circumstance being like, you know, in your fifties or closer to fifties or sixties, um, that's kind of the optimal time to start looking at long-term care. Won't get into details today on the different types of policies, you know, whether it's a traditional long-term care policy or one of the life insurance policies that offer a long-term care rider where you can tap into the death benefit to pay your long-term care expenses. But that's something to consider if, uh, uh, if you want to be able to, protect your nest egg from, you know, high long-term, uh, care assisted living costs. Now you might, you know, feel like you can self-insure for that. You know, we're saving up a healthy amount. You feel like you'll have $10 million when you retire and, and it's more than you're going to need and you can afford to pay for your own long-term care. Great. Then we don't need the insurance. You know, we only want to insure against things that could be problematic for us financially if they were to occur. Um, Home and auto and umbrella coverage, periodically review those. Make sure your home insurance is in line with your current home value and rebuild costs in your area. Uh, your car insurance, um, you know, the big thing there is the liability, you know, making sure you have probably the maximum you can get on liability and, uh, and maximizing your uninsured and underinsured motorist liability coverage so that if you're in an accident, and someone hits you who doesn't have insurance, you can be financially compensated uh, appropriately for that, for the damages that are done. Not so much to the car, but more so like if you're injured, you have medical expenses, um, you can't work for a while, like you're going to want to be compensated for that. Um, usually you can get up to a million of uninsured motorist coverage on your own policy. Um, and then umbrella liability, that's a very inexpensive form of asset protection. So if you're the roles are reversed. You're at fault for the car accident, you know, and someone sues you, uh, the umbrella can kind of act as a deterrent for them to want to go after you personally beyond the limits of your car and umbrella insurance. So, you know, usually it's sold in million dollar increments, you know, having at least a million, no matter what stage of your career you're at is smart. But once you're in attending, you know, I usually tell people have at least as much umbrella coverage as you do assets, but even if you only have 500,000 of assets, if you're a physician, people see, assume deep pockets. So it wouldn't hurt to even have 5 million of coverage, even if uh, you're early on in your career, just again, uh, less likely the uh, plaintiffs will want to go after you personally, if they can feel like they're adequately compensated from the insurance company. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I think a lot of this can be turned into a few actionable steps, you know, um, be more cognizant of your spending when you're planning out big expenses, especially for the year. Uh, if you feel like you need to save more for retirement, you know, increase that retirement plan at work a few percentage points if you're not maxing it out, maybe increasing your brokerage account contributions. A lot of people have that set up on a monthly basis to try to get to that, you know, 20% or so goal. If you can just bump it up by like $500 or $1,000 a month just to get more into that account, that can be really helpful. You can do the same thing for college savings plans. 
You know, if you're doing $400 a month into a 529 plan, but you don't feel like that's adequate, maybe we bump it up by a couple hundred dollars a month. And every year as your income increases, if you can do this a little bit to kind of keep up with those income increases, but also put more of that income to work for you, that's a great way to just incrementally make some improvements to your financial situation. Um, That's going back to that first question at the beginning of the episode, like what are my financial objectives or what am I looking at in the new year? Like every year I just save more than I did the previous year is, is essentially what my goal is. So bump up the kids college accounts by a little bit every year, uh, bump up the amount I'm saving for myself for retirement every year. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's more than others, uh, depending on how the year is going. But, um, but yeah, just baby step the way forward, try and do better, uh, every year moving forward is the, uh, the objective. Yep. The other thing, you know, if you feel like you're knocking it out of the park, which you very well could be, then give yourself a pat on the back and give yourself permission to worry about it less. Because I do feel like a lot of the people that are sort of overachievers in this financial world in terms of saving and things like that are also the people that worry more. And it's not necessary. You may be causing yourself some some stress that you don't need to feel. You know, so if you're just just doing a great job like let's let's let that be one area of your life that you don't have to worry about too much for sure yeah i think um this is a great thing to bring to your next review meeting with your financial advisor if you have one so if you don't feel comfortable doing a lot of this review on your own some of it maybe you can't do with an advisor like you can't comb through your spending with your advisor necessarily but a lot of this you can do with them so you know like let's make sure we're doing a comprehensive review and going through these things if there's specific things you're worried about make sure you note that going into review meetings so that you bring it up because your financial advisor doesn't necessarily know what you're concerned about so that's a a good thing just to have in the back of your mind um but also like if you have done a lot of this a review ahead of time if there's specific changes that you want to make or that you know you want to make or maybe you need some help tweaking like what do i need to adjust here bring that to the meeting as well like come prepared to to ask questions because those questions can be really helpful for fine-tuning the, those financial plans and preferably uh email over the questions in advance, not like the day of. <laughs> Don't but spring like them on. <laughs> a couple of weeks ahead of time so that they can have time to prepare and, and, and answer those questions thoroughly and thoughtfully and for, pertaining to your specific circumstances. Yep. Because everyone's got a different set of things going on. Yep. The other thing you can do is just schedule a call with like your property and casualty insurance person. You know, that's going to be the person that's best able to help you with your home and your auto insurance. So just if you haven't touched base with them in a couple of years and everything's just automatically renewing, just take some time to talk to them and just make sure that everything's on track. Um, and then also, if you don't actively work with an advisor, but you got a disability and life insurance policy with someone, you can make an appointment with them as well. Just, you know, have a quick touch base with them and say, hey, do you think I'm still adequately covered? Do you think I have too much coverage? Like, what does this look like? Can you help me kind of, you know, figure it out? Yep. Good to stay on top of this stuff. Periodically review, make sure it's still working for you. And uh and onward and upward absolutely thank you for listening yep have a good one everyone happy new year 
We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast on our Finity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.